Welcome to the Sunday Night Hell Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking about a new video game to address violence against women. We're also talking about the F word for men, feelings, and why men don't show vulnerability in the workplace. And how do you sleep? I'm not talking quality, I'm talking positions. It may speak volumes about you and your personality. Have you been a victim of gaslighting? Chances are you have been, as it was the most popular word of 2022. The Sunday Night Hell Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Daniela Steinfeld is a New York-based, award-winning actress, activist, and filmmaker born and raised in Serbia. Daniela is the creator of Hold Me Right, a feature documentary about the traumatic aftermath and healing for victims and perpetrators of sexual violence, which also tells the story of her own traumatic experience. She's on a mission to create tools that can empower survivors and educate the public to break the profound damage of silence and help survivors find a path forward. Much like Hold Me Right, the Way Out game was created out of her pain, expertise, and passion. And she joins me on the line from the great state of New York, or the great city of New York, right now. Good evening, Daniela. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you for having me on the program. Oh, it's so nice uh, for you to join the program. It's um, pretty late where you are, 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) So I really appreciate you coming on live. That's awesome. That's okay. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm still fully awake. New York. New Yorkers never sleep. Basically, this is true. It's. It is the city that never sleeps. I love New York City. By the way, it, it is my all-time favorite city. I, I do some work in New York, so um, yeah, it's just fabulous. Anyway, um, thank you so much for joining the program and and coming on live underscores the passion that you have about this subject. And, and you're so right. Um, we need to break the profound damage of silence because, you know, people remain silent and that doesn't help. I I was just curious if you wanted to share, you know, a part or some of your own traumatic experience. Yeah. So um, I was born and raised in Serbia and uh, I had a beautiful uh, acting career. And uh, in the height of my career, I had a terrible misfortune of being held captive and raped by a colleague of mine that I worked with, who happens to be a powerful politician. And uh, I fled my country and I left uh, everything I had and I left in silence without explaining to anybody why I'm leaving. And I found my... uh, my shelter and safety and healing in uh, New York and uh, just new made friends. And the healing process was, was definitely long. I suffered from uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, unconditional support that I got from, uh, from a close friend gave me an idea what does, um, what does us as a, as a bystander and support um, can, could do to heal survivors. So then I was thinking, like, if, if I got this kind of um, healing um, from support from my friends, I should do something so others, others could, um, could have this message, this important message, and, and, and basically um, uh, way out from, from their trauma. So I decided to make a feature documentary about healing after trauma, and I interviewed perpetrators and victims. And um, in in that, in the process of, of um, making of the film, I had an idea about 
a video game that can uh, be very suitable for uh, young boys to play or young men. Uh, mm-hmm. and that, that Before we get too issue. far down the path here, I just had, I had a few questions for you. Um, in terms of, you know, can people ever heal from sexual violence? And I'm terribly sorry for what happened to you. Uh, it's absolutely horrific. Is, is this a journey um, that people are on? Uh, so many people struggle so much after they have been sexually violated, after they've been raped, after they've been the victim of uh, this type of violence. Um, you know, is it something that it's a process? Is it, did you overcome it? And, and was that through the help of your friends? Thank you for asking me that. Um, ultimately, speaking was my healing. And uh, working on the film uh, where I took in the last, last part of working on a film, I took courage to share my story. I was really afraid to speak up. Um, and um, I think that healing is, is, a, is a very, very complex um, it's a, it's a very very complex process, uh, and it's not not the same for for all of us. Actually, it's it's quite different. Um, mm-hmm. But for the for the interviewing many many survivors of, of horrendous crimes uh, 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 that they suffered through, they were victimized. Um, I've learned that uh, speaking is healing. However, um, mm-hmm. it's not it's not so easy to to. Uh, tell a survivor to speak up. It comes with a lot of con- consequences and, and um, retaliation very often, and it can it can uh, backfire, and that can be like a, what, what uh, experts call secondary victimization. It can be sometimes much right. worse than than the original crime. But can survivors actually? Um, they don't have to speak out publicly. But I often say, you know, what to my clients, my patients. You know, when you when you cry, you release the pain, and when you when you share your story, even with a trusted person. Or I mean, one time there was somebody in my clinical practice. They were not going to tell anybody. They just couldn't. And I suggested they, you know, sit in the bathroom and tell the wall. Is it helpful to release that story? Does it help to release some of the pain? I think it. I think it is. I think as, as I think that we should share as much as we feel comfortable uh, and as much as we feel safe. Um, and I think yes. I think the the sharing the story uh, places us in owning the narrative uh, and and have, and this is our story. When we are silent, the the the, the story goes that this never happened. And the story goes is that that kind of the, the the right is on perpetrator to be doing this. We are kind of covering their crime in a way. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, and it is a crime. I like that you use that word because it's a crime. It's a, it's a horrific crime. It's it's a horrific mm-hmm. crime with the, the long lasting consequences on a person and on on a family on communities. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's very often the, the one one night of uh, sexual violence can can uh, uh, have a long lasting consequences. And to oh, answer your question, profound. yes. So I I am very very fortunate to have found safety and kind of also mental structure for myself and therapy uh, to heal. Uh, so and what I, were some I of the symptoms healed, that you from? What were some of th- 
what were some of the symptoms that you experienced afterward, the physical and emotional yeah. and mental symptoms? Um, so it started, so uh, right after this has happened, um, I've, I was not able to sleep. Um, then once I realized that like kind of from the initial shock, I started to have a, a sense of euphoria which is also a very common thing to misunderstand survivors. Uh, and it's a, pro- I would assume, I'm not an expert, but it's a probably innate sense of, of, of our, um, our body that like we survived. Right. Um, and, uh, and then it's, and then it went on uh, later on after I, I, I was not able to sleep. I was um, wanted to drink. I never was a drinker. Not before, not mm-hmm. after. I had like a month that I was drink. I didn't even feel drunk. Um, I was blaming myself. I was very, very scared. And uh, when I uh, came to the United States, basically kind of thinking that all of that is over. Nobody knows. Um, I can get over it. I don't have to. I don't have to deal with any of this. Um, I started having panic attacks. Um, and they, they were so, so strong that eventually I did Google, uh, anonymous hotline and shared a story, um, with, with an anonymous person who was very, um, empathetic and, um, and started my healing process through, through counseling. Um, it was a really, really, I don't, I mean, I can, cannot explain, um, I cannot recognize myself from back then and all my friends cannot recognize me. Mm-hmm. I was de- definitely uh, riddled with, uh, with PTSD. It was very hard for me to, couldn't meet, I couldn't meet new people. Um, if I was going to a subway, any, any kind of a strong audio stimuli would let from the train would, would scare me. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't go on a plane. I couldn't fly. That's kind of, that also kind of those uh, turbulences made my body lose control uh and i had panic attacks um and i had but I suffered from insomnia that eventually was so bad and then i had a heart issues so it oh. was it was pretty pretty difficult um and uh, what what helped the most actually is i just didn't know how i can be a functional person i was eventually suicidal because i just i just didn't know how to deal as a foreigner with no access to kind of a resources when I wasn't able to work. I, w- I just didn't know how to continue. And right. knowing that I had a safe haven of friends that kind of told me basically, no matter how you show up, no matter how long does it last, you can be safe with us. And we, we kind of, they, they offered me to live in their house. I was, I was in a pretty, pretty bad shape. And that, that gave me, that, 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 was my, uh, that was my remedy. My guest is Daniela Steinfeld. She is the creator of Hold Me Right, a feature documentary about the traumatic aftermath and healing for victims and perpetrators of sexual violence, which also tells the story of her own traumatic experience. She's also the creator of The Way Out, a game that has been created out of her pain, expertise, and passion. Daniela, I'm sure people's ears perked up when they heard that the um, the feature documentary "Hold Me Right" is healing for not just victims but for perpetrators. I know you interviewed perpetrators for that feature documentary. What did you learn? Uh, 
I've learned lots of things. Uh, I've learned the deep level of ignorance and uh, indifference to the consequences of, of the actions that they've, and the crimes that they've committed. Um, I've, um, I've also, I've learned, oh, I've interviewed many perpetrators from, from, from people that, that uh, just don't want to kind of, uh, uh, don't want to admit that, that they committed a crime, even though they were incarcerated, um, to young um, drunk men who um, had unconsensual sex uh, at the age of 18 and was incarcerated for that. And he was very, very confused about um, what is happening and what are the, the human rules of conduct and boundaries and consent. And he was, he was confused about it even during our interview. And um, I've approached them with uh, compassion. I uh, don't know how I found it. I guess maybe it was just my, uh, my uh, inquisitory uh, document, documentary filmmaker in me that knew that I have to do that. But um, they, they definitely opened up, and I was very surprised that, that the things that they share with me, that, that this is even being recorded. Um, so it sounds so- like it was a lot of denial and ignorance on the part of these criminals, these rapists. Yes, yes, and that's a that's a, uh, in kind of ignorance comes from. Um, we all live in a actually in a in a rape culture that um, we're all born into. Uh, very often we just don't know it, and uh, the kind of signal from from mainstream culture from our, our values for men to understand that that uh, women's bodies, children's bodies, they don't the, the will on on our bodies don't really belong to us, uh, and they picked up on those signals and and they acted upon them. Mm-hmm. Now you've also created something called the Way Out. It's a game. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, the so Way Out game is uh, is a kind of in an early stage of development. Uh, this this also kind of came of of uh, my kind of curiosity of like can we uh, prevent sexual violence from happening? Can we actually uh, eradicate rape culture from from uh, our values as a society? And then I was thinking that uh, how to address that, and the way out the game came to um, came out as an idea to uh, put put in a in an interactive storytelling role playing storytelling uh, the player is uh, supporting and guiding somebody that has gone through sexual harassment and by putting themselves in the shoes of a active bystander they hopefully will unlearn the the toxic biases when it comes to um, how how to best to support somebody that is going through this, how for us to find words um, that are supportive and how not to ask questions that imply responsibility onto, onto a survivor. You know, Daniela, I, I could go on and on and talk to you, but we're up against the clock. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but thank you so much for your incredible work. We'll definitely get you back on the show um, to talk a little bit more about your video game, The Way Out, and, and best of luck with Hold Me Right. Really appreciate 
your coming on the program. Thank you so much. Going to talk about a subject that probably affects a lot of people. You probably don't think about it except on the daily, at the end of the day, perhaps, or a long, hard day at work or after certain activities. Why do your feet hurt? And here's a little secret that you probably don't know about me, but I was a foot model, not, no, no. Was I a foot model or shoe model? I was a shoe model. (laughs) I modeled shoes. They didn't want anything from the ankles up. No surprise there. Um, I was, I am a perfect size six foot and shoe size. And um, so that was the best job I ever had in my life. I was way overpaid for it. But the problem was, and then if I worked longer than the hour that they allotted for this job, it was one hour a day that I worked. And um, if I worked beyond that hour, I got paid time and a half. And I got paid like $50 an hour. So it was pretty darn good for um, somebody in university. So not a bad little job. Anyway, um, it was, uh, anyway, (laughs) I love doing it. It was great. And I love shoes as a result. And, but shoes can be the culprit for some of your foot pain. High heels, for example, put more pressure on the balls of our feet and that can thin our foot's natural padding when you need it most. Now, I typically, I'm on the taller side, so I typically wear flats. I work out quite a bit. Um, you know, I play four or five hours of tennis a week, and which that isn't good. We'll find out about that shortly. <laughs> in doing my research, I realized, ah, that could lead to small stress fractures in the feet. Anyway, so I'm often in hiking boots or sneakers or runners, as you say here in Canada. Um, But when I do presentations or I just feel like being taller than somebody I'm meeting with, (laughs) I will slap on a good pair of heels. And so, but they can actually cause pain in your feet. And and they certainly have um, for me here and there as well. But, you know, sometimes it's just worth it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, one time I had a meeting, it was all men. And I thought, you know what, I'm wearing the six inch heels and I'm going to be taller than every single guy in that room <laughs> because, you know, this, the, uh, the playing field was uneven. So I just had to even it out a little bit. Um, who says we don't use power through shoes anyhow. Um, but you want to match the shoe to the activity and, and make sure that you have proper fit and support. Another time, just another time in my life when it was just like clueless, I was meeting somebody who I just, it was winter time and I had these new suede boots. <laughs> uh Oh, remind me of another pair of patent leather boots I have. But anyway, that's another story. I had these new suede boots, high heels, and I just wanted to wear them. I really didn't care about being taller than the person that I was meeting with, but I think I was anyway. Um, and so they probably had three or four inch heels on them. And I started walking in a place that I was meeting this person in a place that I was kind of unfamiliar with, but I'm looking around thinking, oh my gosh, this is a beautiful place. And it's all decorated for Christmas. And I'm just looking all over. And then I look and I see um, this area and I'm, I'm actually literally walking on this area. And I thought, what a fabulous place for an ice rink. They should put an ice rink here. And then I realized as soon as I slipped, I walked a good 20, 30 feet very quickly. 
And, and all of a sudden I realized, and I just slipped on that ice, hit my head. Fortunately, I didn't get a concussion, but anyway, heels have, can actually get you into trouble if you know what I'm saying. Um, so that's one reason that, uh, your feet might hurt. So choose your shoes well. Um, arthritis can affect your feet as well. We often don't think about that. Osteoarthritis is the most common. That happens when the cartilage breaks down and then your bone rubs against bone. That just sounds so horrible. You can also get gout, which causes uric acid crystals to build up in your big toe, and that can lead to pain and swelling. And then you can have other autoimmune disorders um, where your body's immune system attacks the joints in your feet and ankles, and that can cause inflammation as well. That can happen in lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So, um, you know, very good to have a healthy diet um, because that will decrease inflammation. Now, bunions are something that your doctor might call a hallux valgus. And these are painful bony lumps that grow at the joint where your big toe meets your foot. And I, I mean, I think that you can get those from wearing uh, high heels that, you know, have pointy toes. Guilty. Um, but that can happen slowly over time. I have a friend, we were at an event and she had the cutest shoes on. <laughs> really cute dress. She looked amazing. And I thought they were six inch heels, I'm sure. And I thought, man, she's just walked around in those shoes all night long. They don't bother her at all. And then at the end of the night, she took the shoes off. She had the worst bunions you have ever seen in your entire life. I, I couldn't even, I couldn't believe it. Eventually she did have to have surgery. A lot of people will end up needing surgery. Um, but you can start with not wearing tight, narrow shoes, like high heels, um, cause they can make them worse, but you can ice them and, you know, wear roomier footwear, but they're just so unattractive. <laughs> That's the problem. Um, no pain, no gain. Bursitis is another condition that can affect your feet. Bursa are those small fluid filled sacs that cushion joints, bones, and tendons, but the repeated motion or friction from shoes can inflame them. And this can happen in the toes and in the heel, which, and those areas might get red and swollen and painful. And of course, ice or padding or Tylenol or acetaminophen or ibuprofen, those over-the-counter meds might be able to help. Um, you might need a corticosteroid, corticosteroid injection for um, this or even surgery. So certainly speak to your doctor about that to help you manage the pain. Something that is, I'm sure you've heard about before, plantar fasciitis. It's a common cause of heel pain. It involves the ligament that connects the front and the back of your foot and it supports your arch. And it's not, we don't really know why it gets swollen and irritated, but it makes walking difficult. And you are more likely to get it if you have high arches or tight calves. And it can also result from repeated impact on your feet, like running or when you start a new activity. This is what I'm concerned a little bit about because pounding your feet over and over again, like in running, which I don't necessarily do, but I do hike. Um, but in tennis um, is where my concern is because I do play a fair bit of tennis, but and you might play a lot of tennis or pickleball is a really popular sport. Uh, these days, lots of people are playing pickleball. I don't play pickleball. I don't really know the game, but I don't know if it's as, if it's the same pounding of your feet like tennis is, 
basketball, other sports, they can cause tiny cracks in your metatarsals. Those are the long bones just beneath your toes. And once that happens, you'll have swelling and pain with any type of activity that caused the injury. And so you actually need to get this. This is, this would kill me rest for six to eight weeks to give it a chance to heal. Because if you don't do that, and I do like to pay attention to medical advice, you might create more serious damage that is actually harder to treat. Of course, you can always sprain or strain, um, your ligaments that connect your bones to each other. You can twist them or tear them and strains are the same type of damage to the tendons that connect muscles to bone. And aside from the most common spot, which is the ankle, you can also get them in the middle of your foot around the arch or at the base of your big toe. And the area may become swollen and bruised, and it'll probably be challenging for you to walk. And, and the treatment is rice, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. And that's in the first two days. And then you want to speak to your healthcare provider if it continues to hurt after two weeks. Of course, your foot is made up of many small bones, and it's easy to break one of them when you fall or if you're in an accident or when you're playing sports or you know, if you trip or fall down the stairs, that might be the least of your problems breaking your foot. Other things can happen as well. Um, but your foot likely will get hurt and get swollen and bruised and, you know, a broken foot. I mean, it looks brutal. I, I get lots of people sending me photographs, <laughs> friends, family, sending me photographs of their injuries. <laughs> and I have a whole collection of broken bones in the feet that have been sent to me and, oh, they look brutal. And a severe break might require surgery as well. Something you may or may not be familiar with is Morton's neuroma. And you, if you have pain in the front part of your foot or feel like you're walking on a rock or marble, you might have Morton's neuroma. It happens when the tissue around a nerve starts to thicken. It can actually affect any toe, but it's common between your third and fourth toes. And women are far more prone to it than men, of course, likely because they, we tend to wear shoes that have, you know, tapered toes and high heels and our, we tend to squeeze our feet into those shoes. Um, and again, rice, rest, ice, padding, over-the-counter pain medications, or you might need surgery for this. You've heard of the Achilles heel. Well, yes, it's true. The Achilles is a thick tendon that connects your calf muscles to your heel and you can have an injury. Repeated motion can inflame it. It's called tendonitis. And so it could be from a jump or a fall. It often happens during sports and it can tear or rupture, but you might feel or hear a sudden pop and feel a sharp pain in the back part of your lower leg and your heel could swell and it may be hard for you to stand on your toes. Again, rest and icing are important. And again, you might need surgery for this as well. And then something else that is just so annoying and can be chronic are plantar warts. And they are growths that show up often on the weight bearing areas like your heel or the ball of your foot. And they happen when the human papilloma virus or HPV gets into your body through a break or a cut in the skin. And the skin can feel thick and painful and tender. They typically will go away on their own without treatment, but there are some over-the-counter remedies that you can try, or you might want to speak to your doctor if you cannot get rid of the warts. There are some treatment options there. You can also suffer with peripheral neuropathy, and this results from damage to your nerves that connect your spinal cord to your feet. 
And you might start with symptoms like numbness, tingling, jabbing pain might occur as well. The most common cause is diabetes. That's why it is important to prevent diabetes, to keep your blood sugars managed well if you do have diabetes, because um, it is the most common cause. It's, and it's a reason you know, so many people are, you know, as they approach midlife, they gain a lot of weight, especially in the middle, and then they might be prone to diabetes type 2. Um, but there's other reasons as well that you can get peripheral neuropathy, and that can be from cancer drugs like chemotherapy, kidney failure, autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, toxic chemicals, infection, and also nutrition problems. So anyway, lots of foot problems, potential foot problems. I didn't even cover them all. There's more like Raynaud's syndrome and tarsal tunnel syndrome, but so many things. So it's so important, it, you know, treat your feet well. There's nothing I love more than a pedicure. Sleep is so important in your life, and especially at, at this time of year. And you might be sleeping a little bit more these days because as winter sets in, I know I sleep a little bit more in the winter time than the summertime. But how you sleep, although, there's no, although there is no hard and fast evidence, and I do like evidence-based information, there are some interesting associations that how you sleep can be related to back pain, snoring, your personality, how you wake up during the night, how you wake up in the morning, moody little, you know what? Anyway, it could be related to how you actually sleep, whether you sleep on your belly, for example. If you're a tummy sleeper, do you have problems sleeping? Your slumber pose may not be helping. You're more likely to be restless and toss and turn to get comfortable when you sleep on your stomach. It can actually strain your neck and lower back. To my mind, I just think this is probably the most uncomfortable sleeping position. But if you do like to sleep this way, you might want to try a very soft pillow or none at all to keep your neck comfortable. You might want to have a flat pillow as well. Uh, there, there's also, and I've been known to do this, um, just sharing so much tonight, oversharing <laughs> TMI way too much. It's all about me. Um, you know, who hasn't, <laughs> okay, this might sound a little sexist, but what woman hasn't done the free fall? <laughs> I mean, we do have a fair bit on our plates. Okay. We're still doing the lion's share of the housework. Um, about 7% of the population sleeps this way with that belly position free fall. You're just exhausted, but you lie on your belly with your arms around a pillow and your head turned sideways. There is some research that suggests if you sleep this way, you're more likely to speak your mind and be sociable and outgoing. Hmm. Maybe I sleep a little bit more <laughs> on this way than I realized. Um, and you might not be very open to criticism. <laughs> This is sounding all too familiar anyway, but I don't claim to be a free fall sleeper, but every now and again, I am now back sleeping can cause low back pain for some people. If you already have that, it can make things worse and there's nothing like back pain. It is the worst thing. I can't stand back pain, but if you snore or have sleep apnea, it can make those bigger problems as well. And, but if you have these, you can't get comfortable any other way you might want to actually seek some medical help there. There's also that soldier position. And this just amazes me. People just lie in their back looking like soldiers. About 8% of the population sleep this way. Your arms are down and close to your body. And some research suggests that you might be 
tend to be on the quieter side and keep to yourself. Oh yeah, that's me. Um, I never sleep like a soldier, but you may also expect a lot from yourself and from others as well. Then there is the starfish, which I've been known to sleep like this. Only about 5% of the population sleeps this way. I, I have absolutely no problem sleeping. I love to sleep. If I get on a plane, the second they start backing up the plane, I am my head is bobbing off and I basically sleep for the entire flight. I'll often take a red eye because I can sleep on the plane, no problem, and I don't like to miss the day. So um, I can sleep anyway. But one time I had surgery and they said, do not sleep with your arms above your head for whatever reason um, for six weeks. <laughs> and so I didn't because I'm a good girl. I went to Catholic school, the whole thing, and I do what I'm told. So that can be good or bad. Anyway, I um, for six weeks, I did not. As soon as that six weeks was up, I was like, I had never slept with my arms above my head. I sleep with my arms above my head. Anyway, um, it's it, and according to some studies, you may be more likely to be a good listener and not want to be the center of attention. I'm probably a good talker <laughs> and I'm okay with being the center of attention. Or some have said maybe. Anyway, some mean people have said that. Um, side sleeping. Here we go. This is This is my actual one that I will admit to. Um, how do you sleep? Tell me what positions you're sleeping in. Anyway, there's many ways to sleep on your side, but the most comfortable is with your knees bent a little bit toward your chest. We call this the fetal position. It actually can help with digestion a little bit. Most people sleep this way. More than 40% sleep in this curled up side sleeping position. Most, a lot of women, this is the most common sleeping position for women and twice as likely than men uh, to sleep this way. And some research suggests that we're more likely to be warm and friendly and sensitive, but may also have a protective shell around us. So is that you? I mean, you know what? You can apply all of these things to yourself and me and you and whatever. <laughs> anyway, there's also the log position. About 15% of people sleep like a log. That is me, 100%. I'm out cold. You can have a volcano and I will not wake up. Um, but those people who sleep like a log, but literally sleep like a log, you're on your side with both arms down. They say, and, and again, there's no evidence and no real research behind this, but they say these people tend to be social, easygoing and trusting. So far, um, you know, we haven't seen any lunatics from sleeping positions. We haven't seen any narcissists. We haven't seen any mean people, but you know what? There's a lot of people that are, you know, evil. Um, so I don't know how they sleep. And, and if you're not sleeping, it, it can affect your mood as well. So I'm not even sure about all this, but nonetheless, it's, it's fun. It can be interesting. About 13% of people sleep in the yearner side position where their arms are out in front of their bodies. Some studies, and again, not really hard evidence, say you may be open-minded, but suspicious and stubborn about sticking to a decision once you've made it. Maybe you're like that black and white kind of person. Um, spooning, side position, also a, a nice intimate position for couples in your close to your partner. You may wake up more often, but cuddling is good for you because it makes your body release that chemical called oxytocin that can help to lower your stress, bond you to your partner and help you get to sleep faster. So if you're a moody little person, then you might want to spoon. You got questions. She's got answers. The nurse is in for nurse talk. 
Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. We've got lots to talk about in this hour as well. Before we get into men's mental health at work and men's mental health in general, um, I just want to let you know, coming up on the second half hour of the program, I'm going to be talking about the importance of mantras or scripts in your relationship and how that can build confidence and improve your mental health. I'm also going to be talking about the most popular word of 2022 by Miriam Webster. And I uh, had a little conversation with Jill Bennett from CKNW this week about that very word. It seems like a lot of us have been a victim of this word. wonder if you have. If you have any questions at all for me or my guest, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. She's a regular contributor to this show. She does a lot of work in the workplace. She's a medical doctor in wellness and performance. She empowers employees to perform their best and reduce burnout and overwhelm so they can increase productivity in the workplace. She's about leverage-based leadership. She's a speaker, a trainer, and a writer. She is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? I am good. You know, it's always, it's always a good day when I have some balance, you know, where I have some relaxation, enjoy the coffee in the morning, get some exercise in. Today I got a great hike in, in the beautiful weather that we're having and also played some tennis and also, you know, I enjoy cleaning my house <laughs> as well. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. food in the fridge, you know, yeah. like that makes me feel good. I folded some laundry, <laughs> got ready for the show. I did a little bit of my other work and, you know, um, spoke to one of my brothers, you know, it was all in all, it was a good day. Um, but you know, that balance is, is kind of also about, um, you know, just like being able to, you know, I went on a hike with a good friend and, you know, we chatted about so many different things, got some things off my mind and, you know, it's kind of easy for me in that way. But, you know, oftentimes men don't experience the same thing. And in fact, research on men's mental health shows how distress manifests differently in men than women and how they cope with stress different, uh, differs also. Men face this self-stigma and social stigma about showing their emotions or talking about their level of anxiety, low mood, and stress. Why is that? And I know you do a lot of workplace, um, you know, empowerment work, um, but but why, why do men have a tendency to hide their feelings, to suffer alone, um, you know, to be ashamed about when, you know, when they have issues or when they have anxiety. Yeah. Unfortunately, men are often victims to this whole like toxic masculinity. This like they need to be manly, which is basically not show signs of weakness, not admit there's something wrong. They need to be on top of their game and all aspects of their life. And it really traps them from being human. So that's like you mentioned, the self stigma and the show, the social stigma are huge parts of this. And, and men oftentimes have been groomed from early childhood, you know, don't cry, don't be a girl, you know, don't, you know, just be this certain way, which really um, minimizes their humanity and puts them in a tight spot, especially when normal things happen, like feelings of anxiety and depression, which will happen to all of us at some point in time. It's 
just they're not trained to express this. And society, unfortunately, can make them feel bad if they express these things. So that's a big part of it. It certainly is. And, you know, on my hike today, and um, I wanted to add one more thing that aided in my balance was did a little Christmas decorating as well. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, um, today was a very good day. (laughs) Anyhow, um, but I ran into a a friend that I hadn't seen in a bit, and I don't know what made us start to talk about it, but he actually instructs uh, first responders. And, Mm. And he said, you know, we teach men to put it on a shelf. You know, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't even know why I started having this conversation with him, but because um, I wasn't talking about what I was going to talk about tonight on the show. But he said, um, you know, we, we teach them to put it on the shelf. And then I said, and what happens when it falls off the shelf? And he said, yeah, it's a disaster. And it so, is. you know, men not have not only been socialized to be masculine and to be the strong one and, you know, supportive and, and not to fail. But men have also been taught this by their bros by their mm-hmm. colleagues, by their instructors. And, you know, how much shaming is done when um, this happens to guys? Like, what are guys thinking? I mean, I know you're not a guy, but um, mm-hmm. if you're a guy and you're thinking something, give me a call, one 877 But it's so tough for them to express their feelings because it's not socially acceptable, is it? Yes, it's not. And they don't feel like they have a safe place, too. The fact is, a man will express their feelings eventually if they feel safe and it's modeled, right? Uh Um, They really have to have that place of trust where it's normalized. Because I've seen the, like, macho, macho men in my office, you know, express their feelings. But it didn't come by being, you know... um, being like having the typical stigma being like it takes a softness it takes an openness and a vulnerability to get to men because at the end of the day honestly men and women at the end of the day we're emotional people whether we want to acknowledge it or not there's a little boy and little girl in each and every one of us and we need to respect that inner child and men unfortunately don't hear this messaging or they're not in a place in general where they feel like they're masculinity is safe where they feel safe they feel like they're constantly being judged to an unrealistic expectation and that is to be strong to to not show signs of quote-unquote weakness but in honesty it takes strength to show weakness and i tell this to my to the men in my life and the men i see in my in my office like it shows great strength to show that you are human it does. And to show that vulnerability, because the yeah. state of a man's mental health has serious consequences, um, not only in their day-to-day life, but, but also at work. So what are some of the factors that will be impacted um, for men who are experiencing mental health issues at work? Well, when you say factors impact being impacted, are you referring more to how they respond in the workplace environment or what behaviors that yeah, you're they're seeing? having. If they're having trouble um, yeah. you know, with anxiety or they're not sleeping or they're using substances to deal with their issues, you know, yeah. what can happen in their workplace? What will it impact? Like their, like their yeah. productivity, for example? Definitely. Productivity definitely goes down with when you have burnout, exhaustion. They often withdraw, right? They're not being part of that camaraderie, that team spirit. Um, they may start isolating themselves. And... Um, 
it may start showing where they're, you know, having excessive time off work, which will, for any business owner, knows that they need employees to be present to do the work to get stuff done. So that definitely will impact them. And, and if it continues long enough, it can impact their ability to be promoted at work and other opportunities, which will also impact their finances. Um, short temper, short fuse. The guy that could normally take a joke, you know, is suddenly mm-hmm. snapping at people and getting frustrated and showing anger. And that can lead to disciplining actions, especially if you're showing, you know, like there's only so much people will take before it's like, okay, this is not acceptable. You're going to get written up. So it's, there's a lot, and I find men typically show more anger than anything else. Women tend to present differently when it comes to um, their mental health in the workplace, but I see more anger aggression. That's Is that kind see. of a hallmark symptom that a man might be struggling in his life emotionally more, or mentally? Yes, that yes, that anger aggression, that withdrawal, just impulse, impulsive behavior. Um, Uh risky behavior, the binge drinking, you know, certain activities that they wouldn't normally do, they're now overindulging. So, yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, as you mentioned, their performance can suffer and also motivation. Um, I have a man in my clinical practice who is struggling to be motivated um, to, you know, and, and they are the owner of the company. And oh. I mean, it's very, very challenging, you know, um, yeah. and, and yet it's taken a, a while um, for this person to seek help. I had a patient in my clinical practice who, um, uh, you know, there, there were issues. It was a heterosexual couple and, and she just found that, you know, he wasn't vulnerable and that was a, a turnoff for her. And then when he, oh, yeah. you know, expressed vulnerability, you know, I said like, like how sexy is that? Like, how great yeah. is that? You know, and, and oftentimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, but men think the opposite. They think if I just, if I'm tough, if I'm, you know, if I don't show any weakness, if I don't show any vulnerability, you know, I'll get more respect. But is that the case? Yeah. No, you know, I encourage men, even in my own practice and life, it's like, you know, you showing your emotions is a positive thing. Like this is, this actually opens things up like in a, in a relationship it's a turn on for many women especially women who are healthy you have to have two healthy persons because if that other, the other partner whether you know whatever genders feels that a man should be a certain way and it's not healthy well they're not going to be complimenting the other person so you have to have t- two people who are health like you know who are receptive but yeah that openness that vulnerability that desire to like do better but know that they need help that is that is that is sexy that is a good thing i think as society we need to rewrite this like this is a good thing my guest is dr tomi mitchell she empowers people in the workplace and we are talking specifically about men's mental health in the workplace thanks for staying on the line Dr. Mitchell, I really appreciate it. You talked a little bit about some of the behaviors that men can have, like like heavy drinking, especially alone, which is you know a form of escaping. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the other ways that distress in men, you know, can show up? What behaviors, especially whether they're at work or even if outside of work, how does distress show up in men? Well. The- Impulsive behaviors, um, like excessive TV watching. It's not just coming home and bedging on the TV on the couch for like a little while. It's like hours 
whether or it could be on their phone, random YouTube videos and video gaming, just really just whiling their time away mindlessly. Um, some, on the other hand, do the overcompensation at work. So over-investing at work, excessive hours. Uh-huh. However, you often still see decreased work performance and quality. Just because you're spending more time doing something doesn't mean it's actually quality because you still need focused time, right? So that whole decreased yeah. concentration and problems with completing tasks on time are hallmark signs for many men. Yeah, you make a great point, especially around that over-investing at work, like people who are working long hours, you know, staying many hours after everybody else has gone home or working on on weekends, that can actually lead to diminished work performance and difficulty concentrating, as you mentioned. How about, you know, do guys have a tendency to withdraw? 100%. So um, in relationships, you have to see it as an emotional withdrawal where the man is kind of like, you know, grunting or not really saying a lot, not expressing uh, his emotions in the workplace, perhaps they were the life of the party, you know, going to events. No, they may stop doing that entirely, right? Not hanging out with the team for lunch or mm-hmm. eating alone, avoiding contact with their friends and family and, you know, and just staying at home. So excessive, quote unquote, sick days can be mm-hmm. another red flag. So withdrawal is, is a very common, unfortunate um, sign that can show up. Absolutely. And I, and I know, and I can't uh, underestimate the high area irritability, the snapping at people getting frustrated, showing anger, um, are all, are all behaviors that can occur. And so if this is happening to you, you know, it's a good idea to get help, but how can the bosses, the managers, the CEOs, uh, step in and help their male employees um, with their yes. mental health at work, or even ma- not just male, but male and female. Just you know, and they. How can um, managers, you know, give people a hand in this? Yes, for sure. First, lead by example, which means for them themselves getting more comfortable with their own mental health, because you can't like lead what you don't know, like you have to be on that journey of self-discovery of wellness yourself. Otherwise, it's not going to come up as authentic, right? And really being vulnerable in private settings, right? That's key. Mm -hmm. Vulnerability, not in like a board meeting, because the board meeting rooms are associated with like judgment and criticism and performance and all those things. A neutral setting where someone can kind of like lift down the veil and just be more relaxed and being open. But again, that requires an atmosphere and then workplace that has that psychological safety, which we talked about in the past, that feeling where people feel safe, they feel like they can talk about things, and they feel like their boss is sincere and has their back. Because if, you're, if your boss is kind of like uh, two-faced, you're not going to listen to them if they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I've been really struggling. Like, you're going to be like, whatever. You, so you have to build those authentic relationships. Those relationships are really, really key, especially for something as personal as mental health. So mm-hmm. that would be a really important first step. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the workplaces today, you know, there's, everybody is overloaded. Everybody has so much on their plate, you know, that we're connected 24 seven, people can get in mm-hmm. touch with us anytime. It really yeah. takes strength to say, and to set healthy limits and boundaries to say, I'm not answering calls on the weekend. I'm not answering calls after a certain time. This is family time. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, it's it's so important that managers respect that as well. What do you think? 
100%. And that's something that, you know, I really doubled down on during the pandemic when, with my when I uh, with my office. I'm like, you guys, our, your health is really important. Like, I'm like I said, boundaries, like as far as hours, I don't want anyone going over this many hours any given week. I need you to take, let's say, two days off a month during the week to take care of you, whether it's appointments, go get counseling, and really normalize this conversation where you sit down one-on-one with your employees and just talk with them. Like, how can I help you? Because I know that if I'm struggling, how much more are you probably struggling? And let's see how we can support each other because, like, you know, we're only as strong as our you know weakest link. So let's pull each other up and just be open and honest with your own journey. It doesn't mean you have to tell you all the details, but just be like, you know, words like you're get you know, you you do things, you meditate, you you do something that relaxes you. Perhaps you do acupuncture. Perhaps it's like a counselor that's really helped exactly. you. You know, tighten up in certain areas because you recognize that all our past experiences impact us. All great advice as usual. We're up against the clock. Thank you so much. (laughs) We have to legitimize and redefine help seeking as a show of strength and character. Thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. Coming up. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome to the final segments of the Sunday Night Health Show. It's been a pleasure having you here with me this evening. And, you know, so you might think that I script the program, but I actually don't. <laughs> I do prepare for the program and do some research. And occasionally I think about what I'm going to say. And occasionally it works. But for the most part, it's off the cuff. It's just, you know, what you hear is what you get with me. Um, but you know what? I'm talking to you. You're not talking back to me. Unless, of course, you text me or there's a call and we have a bit of a conversation. It's kind of back and forth. But that's very, very common in relationships to have that back and forth conversation. And oftentimes when the relationship is acrimonious or people aren't getting along or there's trouble or turmoil, people have a tendency to fight. They get caught off guard. They say things they wish they hadn't. They do things that they wish they had had not promised. They get all, you know, mixed up and they, and they also start to defend themselves and they think that gives them power. But what that actually does is give them unhealthy power in the relationship. And this is a relationship tip that I give to a lot of my clients um, because I find that they tell me about the situations in their relationships, but it also can be, you know, it can be a personal relationship. It can be a professional relationship. It can be somebody at work who's giving you trouble. It could be your children. It could be your parents. It could be friends. So, you know what? I feel it's really important, especially if you are having difficulty in a relationship to have a mantra or to have a script, to have something to say. You've heard me use the word curious before, and I love the word curious. It's awkward for people to start using at the beginning to say, especially when somebody asks them a personal question or they're they're actually being too invasive or invading somebody's privacy or crossing boundaries. Instead of giving somebody the answer, you say, I'm curious why you're asking that question. It puts it right back on the person, and, and oftentimes the person is just being nosy. Now, that might be a friend or a colleague or whatever. I, I remember one time um, I was working and, and I'd gotten a promotion. And, and to be honest with you, I, I never really cared about the money, <laughs> never really looked at it, but I didn't actually get a raise. I got a different position, but they didn't give me a raise. And somebody asked me, 
did you get a raise? And I said, no, because I had not gotten a raise. Well, about a month later, the company came to me and said, we made a mistake. You're entitled to a raise. And so we're going to give you the back pay and, and here you go. This is how much it is. And I was like, okay, thank you. Well, that person who had asked me about that raise found out that I actually had gotten the raise a month later and then accused me of lying. So although I didn't give that person the information about the raise, I had given the information that I hadn't gotten a raise. And that would have saved me a lot of trouble because that person now thought that I was a liar, accused me of lying, started gossiping to other people that I was a liar. And you know, the bottom line, I was clueless. <laughs> yes, I will admit to that. But a liar, I was not. In fact, I'm honest to a fault, but I've learned not to be so honest. And that's another thing that's important in your script. You don't want to give away too much information. And what I should have said to this person when she asked me if I had gotten a raise, I'm curious why you ask. There's no other reason than she was being nosy. And so it might've stopped her in her tracks and it might've saved me a fair bit of trouble at that point in my life, you know? And when you're young and just starting out and you know, you think you have to give all this information, you don't. Well, the same thing happens in your interpersonal relationships or your personal and intimate relationships, especially when things go awry. And so oftentimes uh, clients will you know, they don't know how to respond to their exes. And, and especially if there are children involved or they become, they feel guilty. They, they feel shame. They're embarrassed about certain things. They, you know, they're oftentimes children are used as pawns, which is just one of the worst things that you can actually do to your children. If you have an ex, if you're divorced, if you're separated, you always want to honor the parents but sometimes that doesn't happen. And so I have a client who I'm going to try to change it a little bit because I want it to remain anonymous, but there are children involved, I will say. And there, there has actually been a, a situation where the mother and, and spouse of this person has taken the children away to a very far away from their home, in fact. And, and so this particular person was giving all of this information and was just basically begging and cajoling the ex to bring the kids back. And that one who took the children had the power. So, you know, this is basically a really nice person, the person who's just trying and, um, they actually were involved in a sexless marriage, which is why people come to see me. So the relationship was sexless. So there's that there's frustration in a relationship when it's sexless, there's that. Um, but also this person was just trying to say all of this stuff and was superfluous in their language and it wasn't helping them at all. So I suggested that they have a script and, and so they utilized that script. And it was one line and it's, it's a favorite line of mine. I give it to lots of clients and people don't know what you mean by it, but it makes them a little bit nervous. And you're also, and it flips the power. It flips that unhealthy power back to a little bit more, a little bit of a healthier power. And, and you feel empowered. You feel, you feel good because you're not begging. You're not cajoling. You're not groveling. You're actually just saying, okay, 
which is a change of behavior oftentimes from that pleading, crying, please, begging to, okay, you're not going to do that. Then I'm going to, and here are the powerful words right here, quote unquote, take the next necessary steps. Nobody will know what that means. And in fact, they might guess. And you know, the initial guess is that, oh, you're going to call a lawyer. That may not be what you're going to do, but that's what a lot of people guess. So having a script, and I said to my patient, how do you feel after that? They utilize that. And they said they felt great. They felt empowered. They felt confident and they felt so much better. Anyway, don't underestimate the use of scripts in your relationships. It was announced that the Merriam-Webster's 2002 Word of the Year has been chosen. And that word, if you've not heard, is gaslighting. So I thought, why don't we do something on this word, what it means, and how often this is taking place. And who better to bring us that very information than Maureen McGrath, host of the Sunday Night Health Show right here on CKNW. Maureen, so great to chat with you again. Lovely to chat with you as well. I hope you trust me on this, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. When I saw that earlier today, I saw it, and I'll fully admit, I had to look it up again because I always forget the exact definition. But when I was doing that, I was reminded that when you and I used to chat way back when, when we used to chat on Sunday mornings, I know you have talked about that in the past and what an issue it is. So that's why I wanted to talk to you about it again today. And certainly, and gaslighting is not uncommon in relationships, in any kind of relationships, whether that's a personal relationship or a business relationship. And, you know, the, the, although it's become ubiquitous in society and the definition has expanded, the basic definition based on the movie Gaslight from the late 1930s, early 40s, um, the manipulator attempts to make their victim believe what's happening to them isn't actually happening and that their reality is untrue. The goal is to make someone think that they're crazy. So it's, that's not the expanded definition today. Um, it's really related to trust and, you know, lies and misinformation. And I also had to look that up. I wasn't I wasn't aware that it came from that movie from the 40s, but it makes a lot of sense that that's where the phrase is. Do, do you think the phrase, though, has changed a lot in that, like you said, it is ubiquitous now that people are using it, perhaps using it, uh, too broadly uh, for what it actually is? I think people are using it too broadly because, you know, again, you, a seasoned journalist, broadcaster, had to look up the definition <laughs> of it. And so perhaps you haven't experienced it, which is a good thing. Um, but I think people will often assign that word to, you know, if somebody's complaining about their relationship or their boss at work, they might say, you know, they're gaslighting me. But some of the examples of gaslighting is are, is lying about or denying something and refusing to admit the lie even when you show them proof. Remember, the ultimate goal of true gaslighting is to drive somebody crazy, which is what the, the man in the movie was doing to his wife. Um, and that related to the gaslights, you know, being dimmed. And he was saying that 
you know, it wasn't happening, but she was witnessing that it was. Um, another example is insisting that an event or behavior wit- you witnessed never happened and that you're remembering it was wrong. I think we're applying this today to politics as well. We've seen that in the U.S., the January 6th insurrection never happened. It wasn't what it was, you know, even though there was a lot of footage about the violence, but then there were other people coming on and, you know, denying that it that it happened. And, you know, and I, and I also think that um, people are fed up with the lies and the misinformation. And I think we saw that in the midterm elections. Now, I, I'm no political expert <laughs> or analyst, but politics plays a big role in people's lives and in their relationships as well. No, it does for sure. Do you think when someone is gaslighting somebody again, whether it's it's denying that something ever happened to the point where the the person is questioning that whether they saw it or experienced it or, or or doing those things to to slowly really try and drive someone crazy, are they always doing it and they know they're doing it and they're doing it on purpose, or are there people like narcissists or people who are doing it and maybe don't even know they're doing it? You know, I often say that people, this is a sport for people. Um, You know, people get a a certain kind of bizarre thrill out of driving somebody else crazy. I think it's also related to self-esteem as well. You know, people would rather be right than happy. So they'll say anything they want, especially in this age of misinformation and ruining reputations and the internet and social media. You know, something as simple as somebody spreading rumors and gossip about you or telling you that other people are gossiping about you or making things up about you, that's just really made to or said to make somebody feel better about themselves and put somebody else down. You know, but we consider that today in this expanded definition of gaslighting, we consider that an example about gaslighting, but it actually really isn't. But because the word has become so ubiquitous in society today, there are so many different examples that that word is used. And that's why it was increased. Looking it up was increased by over 1,700%. Yeah, and and I'm sure it wasn't just people like me that uh, I was just double checking and making sure. Like you said, because it's used in so many scenarios now. I thought, has it changed? Is it does it mean something different now, or is it an expanded definition of it? But uh, glad I'm not the only one uh, who was looking that up. What is the end game if somebody, and say in a relationship scenario, somebody is gaslighting the other person? What is the end goal of that? You know, for the true narcissist, it's really about actually driving somebody crazy. And and as I say, it is a sport for people. And you see that in workplace bullying, for example, um, when a boss is trying to intimidate an employee. Um, you know, it's very, very damaging mentally, the true definition of the word. Um, I think at the, you know, at the lowest definition of the word. It's just trying to get people to come on to their side. And we saw that political divide in the U.S. Or, you know, we might see that with, um, you know, actors or people on social media or influencers who might put something else down. You know, they want to promote their their product. Um, But I think ultimately it's, you know, it's to win. It's so people will when 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 we use it in the expanded definition but when we use it in the original definition i think it's to harm people mentally and i think people who are narcissistic who are typically gaslight other people are are severely mentally ill themselves and not to say mentally ill people would do this but i think there's a whole definition of evil (laughs) which may be the word next year let's let's have a little guessing game um you know and and it's really an evil act uh, of people and 
you know, narcissists, they, they lack empathy. They don't understand. Um, but ultimately, they want to drive somebody crazy. And they, they enjoy it. Yeah, there's clearly something wrong with somebody if you think that gaslighting is an okay thing to do or if you even get any kind of pleasure out of it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it cannot be of a sound mind. But I, I do think when it when it hit politics and when it was trying to get people, you know, to vote one way or the other, I think it was much more related to a win. Um, and people will say anything to win. Some people will say anything to win. Uh, there was also an example given uh, that I was reading about earlier, and not nearly as widespread, I don't think, and not to suggest, uh, again, that, that health professionals are doing this, but the idea of medical gaslighting when a healthcare mm-hmm. professional, a professional just completely dismisses a patient, the symptoms or illnesses or that, that old phrase of it's all in your head. Absolutely. And and we see that happening to women quite a bit. I mean, there was a time not too long ago when hysteria was a medical condition. We see that happening to people of color as well. Their symptoms are dismissed and therefore people will not get the correct or appropriate treatment or they won't get treatment at all or they have to go to seven, eight different healthcare providers to be heard. And And yes, that term has also been applied in that area as well. And, you know, and the thing is, we need to listen to women and people of color um, and people who, you know, are experiencing medical symptoms and illness. And there is this inherent bias at times that healthcare providers can have that, you know, that it is all, all all in their head. And studies definitely support that. And when we talk as well, uh, going back to uh, relationships and in, in your experience, when you've seen this happening, when the person who is being gaslit, what is it do you find that, that kind of knocks them out of it? Or, or do they realize at some point, do they get to such a low level or they realize it or, or perhaps don't, which I think would be even more sad. But have you seen it when people that, that they realize hold on a second, this isn't, this isn't how somebody should treat somebody, and, and they kind of break that cycle. There's usually already been some emotional damage, and the person on the receiving end of gaslighting is suffering mentally. And for the lucky ones who realize it, it takes a long time for them to overcome that, to trust again, and to actually see that what they're thinking isn't necessarily true. And so it's a process. It's a grief process. Uh, I mean, they're in shock. They can't believe that this has happened to them. And, and ultimately, you have to look at yourself and say, you know, why, why did I accept this as truth? You know, what is it about me? And so that's ultimately how people can heal. And they certainly can heal from it, but it takes a long time. People get a, a complex post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of gaslighting. Have you had scenarios where you've told somebody, look, you, this is gaslighting, this is what's happening to you, and they've been completely in denial and saying, no, absolutely not, How, that, that's not it? A hundred percent. And in fact, I, I think of a patient who came to see me about another medical professional, and she was wondering, they were wondering if they should go to this particular person's house for uh, a holiday dinner. And the you know, I had to say this particular person is doing this same thing to other people as well. And, you know, based on the limited information that that person provided to me, and they were stunned by this. Um, Many, many months later, they realized that it was true. But this particular person was 
having inappropriate relationships with patients and not just one. And so there are certain things and stories that you can, that you hear, that you can um, tell that this is going to, this is an example of gaslighting or or even potentially an example of gaslighting. Um, You know, initially people are very excited. um, It's too good to be true. And then all of a sudden the mental anguish sets in. Uh, are you surprised at all that it is the word of the year, or is it a good thing? Do you think that it's uh, that it's sparking conversations and bringing more uh, attention to what this is? You know, it, it's sad in a way. I, I feel uh, conflicted here um, because it's sad in a way because this is what we've resorted to. This is how we've seen so many examples of how people have treated other people so poorly. We look at healthcare providers. I know a nurse who was actually, who left the profession because she would go into a um, store after work in her uniform and people would start screaming at her um, about how she was killing people. And, um, you know, politics has, has certainly been divided significantly across this country and, and to the south of us as well. I think there's still hope. And I think at least people are looking it up. People are not trusting as much as they were potentially before and and perhaps making their own decisions. So, you know, I'm on on both sides of the coin on it. (laughs) All right. Well, Maureen, so great to talk with you again. Sorry it wasn't on a a more fun topic, but good to have this conversation and look at what is happening with gaslighting. So thank you so much for joining us. You are so welcome. Great to chat to you, Jill. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.